I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. and welcome to this latest episode of OK, Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong. Today we're back talking about another chapter of Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. We are on book one, chapter three, uh, titled That the Division of Labor is Limited by the Extent of the Market. And for this one, well, uh, the bulk of the content's right there in the title. Uh, uh, Smith starts off this chapter by saying, <clears throat> quote, As it is the power of exchanging that gives occasion to the division of labor, so the extent of this division must also always be limited by the extent of that power, or, in other words, by the extent of the market. When the market is very small, no person can have any encouragement to dedicate himself entirely to one employment for want of the power to exchange all that surplus part of the produce of his own labor, which is over and above his own consumption, for such parts of the produce of other men's labor as he has occasion for. Pretty clear? Well, just in case, let's peel this one back a little bit. What Smith is getting at here is the idea that in order for the division of labor to take effect, a market has to be a certain size. So, as to allow for the kind of specialization that we spent the last two chapters talking about. Basically, our ability to specialize is tied entirely to the size of the market that we operate in, which in Smith's day meant that it depended largely on geography. If back in the 1770s, you lived in a small rural town, you really couldn't take advantage of the division of labor, because if you did, you'd never be able to find enough demand to meet the kind of supply that you were producing. 
think of it this way. If we take the nail makers that Smith referred to back in chapter one, making 2,300 nails per day, you may be able to produce that many nails. But in a small town, there won't be enough people who need enough nails to justify that kind of output. You can specialize, but you'll always wind up with far more product than you can possibly sell. And here we get into the, the first reference in the book of, of many more to come, of the importance of the intersection of supply and demand. And if, if you've ever taken an economics class or just politely listened to an economist as he droned on at you, you'll probably recognize that supply and demand form the fundamentals of all economics. So Smith observes that, <clears throat> quote, in the lone houses and very small villages, which are scattered about in so desert a country as the highlands of Scotland, every farmer must be a butcher, baker, and brewer for his own family. In such situations, we can scarce expect to find a smith, a carpenter, or a mason within less than 20 miles of another of the same trade. The scattered families that live at 8 or 10 miles distance from the nearest of them must learn to perform themselves a great number of little pieces of work for which, in more populous countries, they would call in the assistance of those workmen. So, with lower demand, the potential for the division of labor goes down, and thus, because people still need things done, they have to take on those roles themselves. Now, of course, the farmer who serves as his own butcher or baker or brewer will probably not be able to perform these tasks as well as someone who does the same job exclusively, and they certainly won't be able to be as efficient at doing them, but they'll still get done. Now, if we take that one step further, what we're talking about is the quality and cost of goods being tied directly to the size of the overall market. Without full division of labor, the quality of goods will suffer, but also their price will increase. Smith then notes that the, the, the largest markets in his time are the ones that have portage for sea transport, or uh, sea carriage as he refers to it. He goes on in some detail uh, that this is a direct result of the sheer amount of cargo that a boat can carry as compared to the amount of cargo that a land carriage could carry. Uh, <clears throat> he says, a broad-wheeled wagon attended by two men and drawn by eight horses in about six weeks time carries and brings back between London and Edinburgh near four ton weight of goods. In about the same time, a ship navigated by six or eight men and sailing between the ports of London and Leith frequently carries and brings back 200 ton weight of goods. Six or eight men, therefore, by the help of water carriage, can carry and bring back in the same time the same quantity of goods between London and Edinburgh as 50 broad-wheeled wagons attended by a hundred men and drawn by 400 horses. Now this by itself may not seem all that revelatory to us, 
Of course boats can carry more cargo than carriages. What's the big deal about that? Well, the big deal here is twofold. First, the micro. Smith states that this dynamic creates a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy amongst markets. Basically, populations and, and thus markets that find themselves near oceans or navigable rivers will grow because of their ability to take advantage of the extra efficiency of the water-based transportation. While landlocked markets will be naturally stunted by having to rely on less efficient means of transportation. This will wind up not only affecting the kind of jobs available in landlocked markets, but also the kind of products, because as Smith says, no goods could be transported from one to the other except such whose price was very considerable in proportion to their weight. So it's not economically viable to transport products that are both heavy or large while also being cheap because the cost of transporting them will not be matched by the profits from selling them. Over time, this will create a, a disproportionate nature to seaside markets versus landlocked markets because when I'm talking about products, it, it, it's not just trivial things. When transportation comes with such high costs, those costs transfer to sh shipping machinery and supplies, which means that it's not economically viable to build factories in landlocked areas. And without major job centers like a factory, there's no incentive for subsidiary industries to, to venture out into the same markets. No groceries, no restaurants, no hotels. This winds up creating a vast difference in the nature and the quality of life between two types of geographies. New technological improvements are slower to make their way out to these populations. Advances in quality of life are slower to spread that far. There's no incentive for cultural centers like theaters or music halls if there isn't a population there to support them. Without the effects of the division of labor, there will be fewer opportunities for people in these smaller landlocked markets to specialize and thus to develop new technologies. A completely different social landscape gets created simply by where you happen to live. That then leads us to the second part of Smith's point, which is in the macro. Because because of the massive impact that access to sea and river transport can have on a market, it stands to reason that when you broaden the lens, this disparity would be seen across entire civilizations. Smith tracks across the known history of mankind, the pattern of prosperity and social cohesion to geographies that allow for ready and rapid exchange. He ties the rise of Greek, Roman, and Carthaginian states to their access to the relatively placid and navigable waters of the Mediterranean Sea. Being able to seek out new avenues of trade and find new markets for their goods allowed for their power and prominence in the early Bronze Age, once, at least once ships that could travel those waters were developed. He notes that they were limited 
only by their their general inability or unwillingness to pass the Straits of Gibraltar, which if they had, they might have opened up more opportunities for growth and affluence. Smith then shifts to the Egyptians and, and cites them as, as being able to tie their entire civilization's footprint together and, as a result, make early advances in agriculture thanks to the presence of the Nile River and their efforts to utilize it for transportation of goods and also communications. He also notes that Bengal, uh, which, by which he means India, and China uh, seem to have histories that confirm his model for development, though he hedges in uh, what will be the first of what we'll have to label as little things that are synchronous for the 1770s, but come off as eh, more than a little antiquated now. Uh, uh, when, uh, when he says that, uh, quote, the improvements in agriculture and manufactures seem likewise to have been of very great antiquity in the provinces of Bengal in the East Indies and in some of the eastern provinces of China, though the great extent of this antiquity is not authenticated by any histories of whose authority we, in this part of the world, are well assured. In fairness to Smith, that was true at the time, in part, uh, in that scholars in England didn't have access to a great deal of authenticated historical accounts from the Far East. But that had a lot to do with Western imperial attitudes towards the people in these distant lands. So I think we'll just have to punt on that one for now. Basically, Smith is confident enough in what he does know of their histories to say that they clearly benefited from their access to sea and river transport. Smith then lays out civilizations that exist in parts of the world that don't have that kind of easy portage, and notes their historical difficulties in cultivating their own markets because of it. Uh, he cites Tartary, uh, which is basically... Asia from the Ural Mountains all the way to the Pacific Ocean, uh, and as well as uh, Siberia. So, a good chunk of modern-day Russia. And he points out that while these areas do technically have access to the sea, that sea is frozen most of the year, and thus not allowing for effective transportation. Uh, he notes that Though this area, ironically, has some of the greatest rivers uh, in the known world, uh, quote, they are too great a distance from one another to carry commerce and communication through the greater part of it. Now that distance between rivers also becomes a critical factor for Smith when it comes to looking at Central and Southern Africa, where again, he notes that there are many navigable rivers but they're too far apart from each other to allow for the same kind of easy movement over great distances that they experience in northern Africa, southern Europe. There's also a minor afterthought that he throws out that political borders can also serve to stifle the usefulness of waterways. Uh, 
Uh, there may be a great river, but if your country doesn't own the area of the whole of it, there's a limit to how helpful it can be to your ability to conduct commerce. Specifically, he talks about the Danube River as, quote, very little use to the different states of Bavaria, Austria, and Hungary in comparison to what it would be if any of them possessed the whole of its course till it falls into the Black Sea. So transportation is key to the development of markets, and thus whole nations, and water transportation, because of its greater efficiency, is critical to any nation thriving. First, let me just throw out a heads up. People tend to think of Smith as, as writing about the philosophies of market and capital, and he does, at great length. But let's not forget that the title of this book is The Wealth of Nations. Smith is writing about what will become known as economics to explain why some nations are wealthy and some aren't. So if you're listening to this episode and wondering why we're talking about ships and ancient civilizations, well, this is actually what the book is about. Smith tends to start at the micro and tell you about pin manufacturing and and then extrapolate that out to the macro and talk about international trade. Book three, when we get to it, is called Of the Different Progress of Opulence in Different Nations. So it won't be all about making pins and nails. Second, some of you might be thinking, hey, He's talking about economic development of whole geographic areas being permanently stunted because of a lack of water access. But that isn't true today, so Smith is wrong. Well, yes and no. Yes, as it turns out, water access isn't as critical as Smith gives it credit for. Though there is something to be said about technological progress being slower to get out to lower population areas. Here in the U.S., we have a bit of an issue with getting broadband internet access out to our more rural areas because it's not really economically cost-effective for broadband companies to run cable out that far because there's so few consumers out there. Uh, here, we see something similar to what Smith describes in this chapter with more remote areas not being able to reap the same benefits as more populous areas. More importantly though, we see that a lack of sea and river access isn't the same kind of uh, fait accompli for markets that Smith makes it out to be. Now, he's not wrong per se here because that's only the case today because of technological advancements that didn't remotely exist back when Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations. Why have inland markets been able to overcome their lack of sea access and thrive in the modern day? Well, credit for that would probably best go to one of Smith's own countrymen, uh, William Murdoch, who in 1784 would go on to build a small-scale prototype of what will eventually become known as a steam locomotive. The invention of railroads and, and, and trains being driven by 
heavy steam engines completely upended the dynamic that Smith took as, as unassailable in his writing. Once train engines reached a, a high enough level of advancement, eh, probably around the, the, the early to mid-1800s, the amount of cargo that a train could carry across long inland distances rivaled that of what even contemporary ships could carry. In fact, in one of Smith's examples from this chapter, the construction of the Siberian Railway was the thing that would overcome the obstacles to commerce and communication that he laid out here. Once you could connect the cities of that area by rail, their issues with sea access were largely irrelevant. Of course, further advances in rail, automobiles, and aircraft would continue to break down the importance of sea transport that Smith talks about here. But I guess it's important to note that sea transport is still one of the most cost-effective ways of getting products around the world. So, Smith is only wrong in a anachronistic context. Plus, he himself noted in an earlier chapter that massive changes to market dynamics that are created by new advances in technology. So, I don't know, I think he gets a pass on this one. And the overall point, being the importance of transportation in general, shouldn't be lost in all of the specifics about sea transportation. In 2017, doctors Jean-Paul Rodrigue and Theo Noteboom uh, released the fourth edition of their textbook, The Geography of Transport Systems, the seventh chapter of which is titled The Economic Importance of Transportation, and goes into great detail about how transportation systems are critical to economic development. So I think it's safe to say that while I'm sure the work of both these PhDs is impressive, Smith said it first. <laughs> Just one last point uh, that I'd like to note, and, and, and this is just to highlight something that, in context, I think is pretty interesting. Well, this will come up several more times through the course of the Wealth of Nations. The references in this chapter, the first gleaning of a critical way in which Adam Smith diverged from the general thinking of his times. Last time, I talked about how much of Smith's writings were a product of his era. Well, this is one of those things where he breaks from what was largely conventional wisdom in his day. What I'm referring to is his views on the effect, or, or rather lack thereof, of race and ethnicity on economic growth. In this chapter, Smith notes that certain parts of the world are less advanced and less affluent than others. As I said before, that idea is the question driving this whole book. But as we see here, and as we'll see a few more times later on, Smith doesn't attribute this disparity to differences between races. Now, that may not sound like an extraordinary stand to our modern ears, but it flew in the face of a lot of the thinking of his time. This was a period where slavery was still legal and practiced in the U.S. and parts of Europe. 
uh, in Great Britain, Smith's own country, it wouldn't be outlawed until 1833. As a byproduct of that, a lot of philosophical thought at the time smacked of, of, of what would later be uh, condensed and, and codified into the, the pseudoscience of eugenics. There was a prevailing wisdom that race was a, terming, a determining factor in potential for success. Smith's own friend and colleague, David Hume, wrote a book titled Of National Characters entirely about this idea, where, where he states, and uh, quote, I am apt to suspect that the Negroes, and in general, all the other species of men, for there are four or five different kinds, to be naturally inferior to the whites. There never was a civilized nation of any other complexion than white, nor even an any individual eminent either in action or speculation. Now that's pretty rough. Now, Smith departed from this kind of thinking, and he attributes the disparity to, between different people to other economic and what will turn out to be much more accurate factors. In this chapter, the reason that Smith gives for the economic and social differences between the people of, say, Southern Europe and the people of Central Africa has nothing to do with race or heritage, but rather geography. In Smith's mind, you could replace the people of any area with a different race or ethnicity, and those new people will thrive just so long as they have access to navigable rivers. The tendency to exchange and trade is something that, that Smith attributes to humans, not any particular race of humans. As a result, the reason there are differences between civilizations is then due to factors affecting our ability to exchange and trade, not anything inherent in our being. And of course today, we all know this. But again, in 1776, that wasn't the case. And I say this not to further hold up Adam Smith as, as some sort of paragon of humanity, but, but rather to highlight his dedication to his own philosophy. He was so convinced of his own economic view of the world, where any person is as efficient as their ability to specialize, and that the division of labor was ingrained in human nature, that he ignored most of the prevailing, quote, wisdom about racial differences. And this led to a great deal of criticism of his work. Throughout the 18th and 19th century, Smith and the Wealth of Nations specifically were often blasted for, well, not being racist enough in his explanations of productivity and economic growth. I, I, I think in, in the end, to Smith, the only color that really mattered was green. So that's our show, and it's a little shorter than I usually do, but uh, this was kind of a short chapter, so I guess I'll stop my droning on. Uh, we'll be back next week with another topic episode, and then in two weeks we'll be back for book one, chapter four of The Wealth of Nations.
Try not to get too excited. Uh, As always, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to take a few minutes and give that five-star rating on iTunes. And while you're there, feel free to write a review uh, for the show as well. You might not think it, but those ratings and especially those reviews really do help to get the podcast noticed by more people. If you're a fan of economics and also a fan of planning weddings, you should check out my other podcast, Let's Plan a Wedding with Mandy and Dave. Uh, Each week I sit down with my fiance Mandy and we talk about the various aspects of planning our wedding. It has been described by my friend Jackie as adorable. Be sure to come join the conversation by either joining us on the OK, Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong Facebook group or feel free to send me an email at okay, let me tell you why you're wrong at gmail.com. All one word, no comma, no apostrophe. As always, special thanks to George Sacco for composing the intro and outro music. And thanks to you all for listening. Last month shattered all previous records for the number of listens, and I, uh, I, I hope to top over that one for February. Also, I'd uh, like to send a special shout out to the surge of listeners that I've been getting out of Japan. Uh, you are now the country with the fourth highest number of listens right behind Denmark. So, arigato gozaimashita. And I immediately apologize for my pronunciation. Uh, with that, I've been Dave Yost, and this has been OK. Let me tell you why you're wrong. <laughs>